0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life or have a relationship with the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Gene Thompson. Jean grew up in the segregated South and became involved with the civil rights movement, starting in the early 60s with the NAACP, and then later with the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. When she moved to California, her social activism widened to include the anti-war and anti-poverty movements. She eventually moved to western Massachusetts, where she ran into the Baha'i Faith. I started the interview by asking Jean where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there?
1: I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, mm-hmm. but I wasn't born there. <laughs> I moved there when I was close to three. Mm-hmm. My family moved to New Orleans uh, about two years after the war. The big W-2. <laughs> W-2, huh? <laughs> yeah, W-2. <laughs> growing up in New Orleans, it was we had a lot of fun. We, I lived in a community where... Everybody was one family. You answer to all of the adults the girl- in the, mm-hmm. on the street. You did something. Someone get after you about it, and they may tear you behind up also. And then when your mother got home, you may got gotten either a skull and another one. So that, that was the type of neighborhood we, we lived in. We used to play outside, hide and seek, maybe about 20 kids. We just had the whole block. We didn't have a park to play in, so the street was our park, and we used to play baseball. We used to play a game that looked something like cricket, but we used to call it a coon can, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, we used to play house, and we used to take the weeds and put <laughs> it into a can and cook it and put seasoning in and stuff like that. So I had fun. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, I lived in the segregated South, so... We went to school. It was overcrowded. Parents fought to try to get uh, another school built for us. They fought to try to get a playground built for us, and the city did not uh, Mm -hmm. want to do that. Mm -hmm. When I went to grade school, back then in New Orleans, grade school went from kindergarten to eighth grade. And then you graduate, and then you're supposed to go on to high school. But we went to a school that had one grade, and that was ninth grade. And we had to go to school, what do we call platoon system? The school opened up at 7 o'clock, and I think it closed at 5. So every hour, a group of people would come in, 7, 8, 9, all the way way up to 12. Then you start leaving at 12, 1, 2, and all the way up to 5 o'clock.
0: I don't quite understand what you're saying.
1: You don't understand. No.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little slow. <laughs> okay.
1: They, the schools were overcrowded. All right. They didn't have enough space f- for us to go to school. Yeah, so, so everybody couldn't f- go to school, school at, at the, the same, same
0: time. time. Yes.
1: Oh. So they came up with this system. And that wasn't for all the schools. And I think it was mainly... For the people who lived in the New Orleans has wards, and I think it was from 8th Ward, 9th Ward, and 7th Ward, and we all went to the same high school. You didn't go to the same grade school, but when you got to high school, you went to the same high school. When you graduated from 8th grade and you went to 9th grade, there wasn't
0: a ward school for that. Yeah. You went, we to, went one. to
1: one school, and oh. that's where we all went for one year, and then you went to 10th grade. And Back
0: to sort of work.
1: W- one school, yeah. yeah. And when we went to high school, we had to travel, I guess it must have been about seven or eight miles, but you had to get public transportation in order for us to get to the black high school. We had to pass by a white high school, which they had regular hours. And also they were bused, but we weren't. We had to take public transportation that our parents Paid for, and you didn't have anything called a pass. (laughs) So, but I had fun in high school. I loved high school, had some great teachers. Going to high school in the South, especially in large cities, you had competition with the football team, the bands. I mean, at halftimes, people used to go to games for the halftime and for The football team. (laughs) And we had competition also with uh, music. Mm. I had fun in high school because also for PE, we had to learn how to do ballroom dancing, square dancing. And when we used to do square dancing, we used to put the the current steps to (laughs) (laughs) it. I had fun in school. I still have some of my friends that I grew up in high school still keep in touch with them. Mm. After high school, I went to LSU in New Orleans, and I didn't finish there because that school was extremely hard. Mm. So we used to say I dropped out after the went to clearance. (laughs) (laughs) That school was so hard that a lot of the white kids stopped going. They integrated that school when it opened up in New Orleans. Me and my sister and some other friends, we decided to go there. Mm -hmm. They did a process of elimination, tried to weed a lot of people out, and I was one of the people who weeded out. Mm -hmm. But then the white students were complaining that they had transferred from LSU in Baton Rouge to this school in New Orleans, and they said it was too rough. They were going back home. So they changed the name from uh, LSU to University of New Orleans. Oh, really? Yes. So I went there, and from there, I think that was from 59 to 60, and I joined the NAACP during that time. Mm -hmm. And I was active in the youth group of the NAACP. We did voter education. And I think in 60, yes, 60, of when the the sit-in started and i wanted to participate in that but i didn't know how to join the group that was doing it and mm. i didn't know how to get in touch with it because i thought it was mainly students and i wasn't a student at that time but i had befriended a woman at lsu N O mm-hmm. and i kept in touch with that and i think i ran across her at one time and started talking about stuff and i Must have told her I was in NAACP Youth Chapter. Well, sometime in I think was must have been in the fall of '60, she contacted the uh, the Youth Chapter of the NAACP and asked us to join them because they they were going to do a sit-in, but they needed more people to picket, and if we would participate in that. Of course, we said yes, Mm. because a lot of us wanted to be active. We needed something else to do. Mm -hmm. So we said yes, but then our president said, well, we have to contact the senior group, the adults, and we did. But the news wasn't good. (laughs) They told us that we could not picket because they weren't interested in direct action. And if we did picket and get arrested... Our parents would have to pay the bail, and majority of us were from working-class families that did not have that much money. So when the lawyer of the NAACP chapter left and we sat around and talked, well, say, well we, what we could do, we can picket, but if they say they're going to arrest us, then we can just turn around, put our picket signs down, and just walk away. So we contacted CORE and
0: CORE being
1: the Congress of Racial Equality, the mm-hmm. New Orleans chapter.
0: Now, and was that sort of a competing organization within NAACP, or were they closely coordinated?
1: More or less, I guess we were trying to cooperate with mm-hmm. each other. All right. I'll put it that way. We did picket, and they did sit in, and we left after that. So we avoided being arrested, so. Our families didn't have to worry about their pockets. So
0: when the uh, cops came, you left and yeah, they arrested they, the sit in people? Yeah, yes. And the sit in people were the core people? Yeah, they were the core people.
1: Mm-hmm. We used to continue to meet in the NAACP and it was mainly a social club <laughs> at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but this is more than 40 years ago, right. 50 years ago almost. <laughs> And I think uh, maybe a month or so passed, and I was watching the news, and there was this person talking about they were going to have an all-out picket of downtown New Orleans on Canal Street, which was the major downtown area. Mm -hmm. They were hoping to get more people to participate. So I watched, well, I lived with two members of the uh, youth chapter, So when my sisters came home, I told them about this, and then we called another friend, two other friends, and they said, yes, let's go. So it was, I think it was five of us. And I have to admit, at that time, the tallest person was (laughs) 5'4", and the shortest was 4'11", and we all weighed less than 105 pounds, and I think one person weighed about 80 pounds. So we went. <laughs> we were a little slender. <laughs> so we went, and we went to the meeting, and we joined CORE, and then we resigned from the NAACP. And from that time on, until I left New Orleans in sixty-seven or sixty-eight, I was a part of CORE.
0: Now that's the heyday of the civil rights yes. movement. Yeah. So, what other kind of activities did you do with CORE?
1: From, I guess, the fall of 1960 to 1963. At first, it was mainly picketing and sitting in. While we were sitting in at Woolworth, if you remember yeah, Woolworth.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> that's right.
1: We remember those. We do.
0: they are ingrained in our heads.
1: <laughs> right. Our kids don't, but we do. Well, while we were sitting in, they would pour ammonia. And they had to sit there because that's what the reason we were there, to sit in. And sometimes people would spit on you and hit you, bump into you, stuff like that. Mm. We used to pick it from about 10 o'clock until uh, four or five. It all depended upon how many people were available. At least four of us would be around. During that time, we used to support each other, but most of us who were in that core group came from families who were working. And we didn't have that much money. We used to pool our monies together. If someone had a dollar, that was enough for us to find a way to buy something someplace to share with each other. We found creative ways of using transfers so we could get back and forth. Because it was hard. on uh, at least My family had to come up with coffee for three people. And, of course, during that time, not too many people wanted to hire us, so we couldn't work. And also during that time, my mother was the only one working because mm-hmm. my father lost his job because of my sister and I going to LSU, you know, to integrate it. So he lost his job behind that.
0: Oh, uh, my gosh. Well, he, was his job at all related to it?
1: No. Uh-uh. We were well known. We didn't know that, but. You would walk down the street and then the police commissioner would call out your name and you knew you never had met this man, so he, mm-hmm. they were...
0: Now, what he, did your father do?
1: My father was a stevedore. He worked on the a, on a riverfront. Mm-hmm. The other reason why he lost his job was because it wasn't unionized and he was one of the few people there who could read and write. And if they wanted a raise, they used to always go to my father mm-hmm. and asked him to write up the petition. He was there for about 20 years, but he was the first person fired, or at least laid off. And mm-hmm. there were some people were there for less years than he, like yeah. five years. Yeah. So he was the first one.
0: That didn't bother him? I mean, he was okay with uh, Oh, no, that didn't bother him.
1: Yeah. See, my parents, they taught us from time we were young that segregation wasn't going to last forever. And we would have to be prepared to uh, do something. When opportunity comes, you have to step forward. The other thing, going back to growing up in the family, right. we on Sunday mornings, we used to have prayer service. After the prayer service, we would go to Sunday school and go to church and then come back home, read the paper, and discuss politics, all current stuff. <laughs> so your parents
0: were very political aware, and made you politically aware.
1: Yes. In '61, in May, there was the Freedom rise. Actually, it was the second one. The first one occurred in '42. This one, the one that the famous one that most people know about, got started in Washington D.C. And then it was supposed to go from Washington and then end up in New Orleans. I think it was on the, the 9th of May. When they got to Anderson, Alabama, as, as everyone knows, the bus was burned. And then they got on another bus, and people tried to get to Birmingham. And then they flew from Birmingham, I think, to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, we had a rally for them and the New Orleans court chapter had sponsored this uh, mass rally. During that whole process, setting all of this up, some of us met from the the court chapter there and said that we should continue this, and not knowing at the same time the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, they were planning the same thing and they were going from Birmingham. We got to Birmingham, they were beaten up. Because our plans was to fly to Birmingham and then then follow the whole trail that they were supposed to use. But the uh, students were beaten up in Birmingham, and then they went from Birmingham to Montgomery. So the group in New Orleans, New Orleans, Cork people, and I was part of that. And we met up with, with Snick and Montgomery. I... I think we went by train. I have to remember all of these things. <laughs> and when I uh, got off the train, it was five of us. When I got off the train,
0: what time was what time of day was this?
1: It must have been uh, midday because it was very very bright. Got out of the train station and 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 you were greeted by national guards with guns, rifles, bayonets. And never seen. I'm 19 years old. I never seen anything like this. And you get out of the train station, you look up, and you see national guards all on the rooftops. You turn around, you see them along the, the uh, roads. We got into the cars. They had set up a destination as to where we were going to go. And then you drive to where you were going to go, and you see national guards all over. We were housed by the people in Montgomery. And then you go outside, you see National Guards all over. So that was an eye open for me that all you wanted to do was just to ride and go to a train station and eat and use the restroom like anybody else.
0: Just a reflection of how scared the white folks were.
1: (laughs) Yes. We were in Montgomery for about two or three days. Martin Luther King and James Farmer... They came down, and we were discussing strategies of what we should do next. And
0: now, James Farmer was the head of corps, wasn't yeah, he?
1: Yeah, James Farmer was the head of corps. A lot of people may remember him from the great debaters. King said he wasn't able to participate because he had other commitments. We asked Farmer, if was he going to participate? And, and at first he said no, but then he said yes, he would. So he participated. I think about two or three days later, we left on two buses. I think Robert Kennedy made uh, an agreement with the governor of Alabama and Mississippi that the uh, trip would go on to Jackson, and that would be it. So we traveled from Montgomery all the way to Jackson. I forgot how many hours it was, and it was a rainy day, and if they didn't want us to stop for personal relief, but we finally prevailed upon them to that something had to be done. so they, we did make a pissed stop someplace mm-hmm. in the rain. and then there was national guards all over the place on the bus, driving behind the two buses. And I guess they were all along the, uh, the highway. And then when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, I think I was on, I was on the first bus, got off the bus. Went into the uh, bus depot, looked around, saw the white sign, white waiting room. Went into there, and then they arrested me for breaching the peace. So I landed in jail.
0: So that was your first experience in
1: jail. Yeah, experience in jail.
0: So what was that like?
1: Very educational. (laughs) 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 I learned how they treated women prisoners. With the, the guards, like they had a peephole that faced where you had to use the restroom and showers. Mm. And for privacy, the um, inmates there told us that you, if you have to use facilities, you wet some toilet paper and you put it up on the peephole so they can't look. The first place I think we got into, I think it was city jail, and that was kind of rough and they had spiders, and they had long legs, and you had to sleep in there. And I was afraid of bugs, <laughs> but I had to be strong, so I didn't show that at all. The meals wasn't that good because you had cold grits, fat back, hard biscuits for breakfast. And I did not eat grits because I couldn't stand grits at that time. I eat it now, but then I couldn't stand it. And cold coffee. On the first trip, I think it was about 11 women. So we sung Mm. the whole time. And I think the next day, some people got bailed out. And we got transferred from the city jail to the county jail. And that was somewhat better. And the uh, inmates, they realized who we were. And they were very nice to us. And that's when they told us the ropes. Mm. And I think then I must have been about three or four of us together. The next day, I was by myself. <laughs> what happened to the others? They got bailed out. All the other women got bailed out. And I'm an asthmatic. I've been an asthmatic most of my life, and it was a bad then. And I had decided I wanted, it may be best for me to leave. So I had said that to the lawyer when he came in. So that day when he told me that we were going to be transferred to the penal farm in Hines County, so they transferred me to the penal farm, and I was all by myself, so I was the first person that they interrogated to tell you all the rules and regulations. And I was interrogated by the warden of the penal farm. His last name was Thompson, and he was six feet, and I guess he must wait about Two forty or something oh like that. Big guy. Big guy, tall, and he told you all the rules and regulation. And one of them was that you had to say yes sir and no sir. And I came from a family that my parents told us that you do not have to say yes sir and no sir to people, especially to white people, because they are the same as you and they are no better than you and no worse than you because we are all equal. So I said to myself, well, I'm not going to say yes, sir, to this man. So how am I going to prevent anything happening to me? So I tried to pay close attention to what he was saying. So I was, yes, blah, 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 blah. And I guess he was getting frustrated. So he came up with something, and he said something. I said yes, and I turned to look at something, and he slapped me so hard that I was knocked out briefly because I saw stars. You do see stars when you get knocked out. <laughs> and I set up, and then I said to myself, this is not going to happen again. But it didn't happen again, so he got tired. So he interviewed the next person. The next person was Reverend T.C. Vivian. He was very high up in um, SELC. What's in, that? The Southern Christian Leadership. All right. Yeah. And he must be because he's still a very slender person, mm. and he must weigh at about 120 pounds. It was maybe 140 it was. He was uh, about 5'10". Lanky guy. lanky. And they slapped him. I mean, they blooded him, and so the man just got tired of hitting him because he kept saying nope. And the next person they interviewed his name was Matthew Walker. Vivian must be about 10 years older than us, and Walker was about the same age as me, about 19. He came up with a different tactic. He said, would ask him something, he would say, Yes, sir, yes, sir, 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 yes, sir. So he just got... <laughs> the superintendent just saw how ridiculous this was, so he just stopped beating up on people. Then somebody uh, got bailed out that day, that evening, and went to the press. I mean, called up CORE and told them that people were being beaten up in jail. So CORE contacted the FBI. When we first got there that day, I think it must have been about midday. Nightfall came, we ate, and then we woke up the next day. The next day was the day was the FBI came around and interviewed us. And interviewed all of us, the other inmates. And the superintendent, they wrote up that report, and the report said that nothing happened. So I said, well, I know I almost fell, uh, got knocked out, and I don't think I was hallucinating because my face was sore. So that just told me a lot about what this country will do and say mm-hmm. to save their own faces. Sure. And... Not to believe everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Question. So, so it was an eye-opener for you. Yeah, very. The following day, they built me out. Corded? Uh, Corded. And I said, I want to stay here. <laughs> yeah. And they said, well, it's too late now. <laughs> yeah. After that, I was, shoot, I'm going to stay here. I'm going <laughs> to prove a point, but... I uh, went to the lawyer's house, a Lawyer Young, which he was the only black lawyer in uh, Mississippi at the time. I'm not sure, maybe one of two. And stayed there overnight, and then I flew. The airports were always integrated. <laughs> so I flew from Jackson to New Orleans. Now, this is my first time flying, never flown before. i was 19. I'm on the airplane, I'm looking around. I was sitting way up front. And I'm looking around, seeing all these white people. I looked out the window, and I see, oh, my God, this plane is going to crash. <laughs> I see all these flashes, all the flames. And I'm looking around, these people, they are not excited. Maybe this is the way it's supposed to be, so I just quiet down. It only took about an hour, maybe less, to get to New Orleans mm. from uh, Jackson. Got off the plane and all of these Reporters came rushing and to interview me and all of that. When I got home, I realized that my sister, oh, by the time CORE had decided that it was going to continue, everybody, CORE and SNCC, they were going to continue to freedom rise. People were going to, was going to go to uh, Jackson. But when I got home, I was informed that my sister, my youngest sister, Shirley, was going to participate also. An hour or two that I was home, I got a call, and I just happened to pick up the phone, and it was my dad. So my dad was looking for jobs all over the country, and he was in Denver. And he said, "What is this? <laughs> I hear that you got slapped. What are you doing?" <laughs> I said, why, "Why? are you angry? Well, people be beating up on you. You shouldn't be doing." I said, "Wait a minute. Didn't you tell us?" And then he backed off. <laughs> and by the way, I think you uh, need to talk to Shirley because she's going tomorrow. Well, I then not say, well, put your mother on the phone. <laughs>
0: so you continued these activities with CORE?
1: Yeah, I worked with CORE. We did voter education. I got arrested again for sitting in, and I think it was either McCorris or else. Woolworth, Lynch County. And that one we sung all night long also. And I went to Canton, Mississippi, I think two days after Mega Evers was assassinated. I, we lived in a freedom house. You know, I think it must have been about four or five of us.
0: When you say a freedom house, what is that?
1: That's where the freedom workers lived communally in one house, and then we went out and worked with, uh, within the community, did door-to-door voter education, knocking on doors, talking to people, seeing whether or not they were interested in registering to vote. And I learned a lot there. If you break bread with people, they will accept you better. Because I never forget, I did not eat greens. <gasps> I was above that. <laughs> and I did not eat Oprah and greens either. This woman, we were getting tighter and tighter and she offered me some greens and some uh, okra cooked on top of it and I ate it and loved it and smacked my lips and I ate it the old fashioned way where you had cornbread and you crumb the cornbread with the greens and you eat it with your, your thumb, your index finger and your middle finger and you broke eat it like that. She and I got along fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well
1: there was another time when We got word that, I don't know, it was the white citizen council or the clans were coming after us, and they were going to shoot up the the house. So they sent all the women to Jackson, and the men stayed there. Mm. The men, African-American men from that town, some of them said, Okay, you guys are nonviolent. We appreciate that, but we are not.
0: <laughs> now who were the who were the nonviolent ones and who were not?
1: These are the, the nonviolent were the people from core.
0: Were the nonviolent ones? Uh,
1: yeah. We okay. because we believed in nonviolence.
0: And then the violent ones I mean not the violent There's, ones, but the ones that did not
1: believe in nonviolence. Yeah.
0: They were it, not associated with core. No. Mm-mm. Were, were they, they, they associated with any No, or, they yeah. were just the local people that ah, we were working. Oh, okay.
1: Working. Associated with trying to get them involved with, uh, with the activities. Uh, with stuff. the activities, so word got back to the white people that the people in core were going. They were going to protect us. They weren't going to let anything happen to us. So nothing happened that day. About a week before I got there, in Canton, I think there were some young people were walking downtown. And they got shot at. And it was just local people got shot at. So there's stuff like that going on in Canton. Mm. There's a little side note. When my father's people were emancipated in 1865, that's where we came from. Oh, Canton. (laughs) Canton, Mississippi. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
0: And then what what took your family to New Orleans?
1: Oh, they went to New Orleans because they were farmers. And... Farmers never did uh, recover from uh, the depression of the turn of the century in 19... The, the 20s old, or whatever. The 20s. Yeah, 1919 that's something, right. after the First World War. Mm-hmm. And my parents was farmers, and they needed they were of jobs in New Orleans, uh, and they wanted to uh, do more for their family, so they moved to New Orleans. And yeah. the rest of the families, I had uncles and aunts, some went to Chicago, Detroit, and California, Mm -hmm. but we went to New Orleans.
0: So how long did you work for CORE?
1: I worked with CORE until 1966 or 67, because when I got to California and San Francisco and Oakland, the CORE groups weren't as active. I was very active in New York. I worked somewhat with Spanish Harlem CORE group and the Bronx CORE group and Brooklyn CORE group. Brooklyn Corp group were one of the groups that tried to prevent the uh, nineteen sixty four World's Fair mm. from happening.
0: I happened to I happened <laughs> to go there to the World's <laughs> Fair as <the> a little kid <laughs> in elementary school. Oh
1: well there were there were actions against that from happening. I was totally but, oblivious. Yes. That was very educational also because There were demonstrations. We had rallies. For some reason, the city of New York were afraid of the core chapters there because they infiltrated the core chapters with policemen. And I had one friend, they tried to commit him, said that he was insane, although he wasn't. And they tried to ruin his life, which they didn't. So I worked on photo education and also for fair rent rent strikes in New York City.
0: Mm-hmm. What was the reason you left CORE? Corps?
1: It became somewhat inactive, and also around that time I became involved with the anti-war movement. It was uh, a part of a black anti-war group, and I was with that for about a year or two. Mm-hmm mainly just talking to kids who were going to be drafted. I participated in marches against the war. Now, what brought me to California, the reason why I left New Orleans, my first husband is Chinese. You couldn't get married in the South at that time. At least you couldn't be. It then became legal in this country, I think, in the 70s. They eliminated it. So we moved to uh, New York. And I lived in the Bronx and that's the reason really I joined the Bronx core chapter and I moved from the Bronx to the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. I didn't meet my first husband, former husband in uh, New Orleans. I met him in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. In North Carolina in 62 they had something called Freedom Highways and they were trying to open up accommodations from uh, the Carolinas all the way down to the Deep South. But that concentration was mainly in North Carolina. We got training in direct action, nonviolent direct action in uh, Greensboro. Then we were shipped out to different places. I worked in Durham, High Point, and Statesville. My husband, his name is Moon, Ing. He went on a hunger strike. He was arrested. Another friend, his name is Frank Nelson, he died two years ago. He went on a hunger strike also. I think they were on a hunger strike for about two or three weeks, just water. I had to leave North Carolina. Summertime was fine. And then fall came and those pollens and mold.
0: And your asthma. <laughs> My
1: asthma. <laughs> I had to leave. I had to go home. Got home, and I was sick for about two months. So that was in 62, and then in 63, oh, I went home, and then continued to do photo education in New Orleans. Then I went to Canton. Well, anyway, I went to, to New York, and my eyes got really open as to how people would, would say, okay, we will do something down there. We weren't willing to do anything up here, and I found in the north it was as segregated, and people were as bigoted as they were down there.
0: You were going to describe how you got to California.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, my... Well, Moon was... Uh, was at city college. it wasn't a university back then. This is in 66 He had just gotten his master's in sociology and he wanted to go to get his doctorate. He got his uh, master's at that December. His draft board was after him. If he didn't get in school soon, they were going to draft him. So he had put in his applications to Brandeis and Wisconsin, Madison, and then Berkeley. Brandeis did not accept students in the spring. Madison said they didn't want to accept anyone, so Berkeley was it. So that's how we got to California. Mm -hmm. We lived in Oakland for six months, and then we moved to San Francisco.
0: And what did you do in California?
1: See, I put the man through school by working. (laughs) I participated with the um, anti-war movement and then also with uh, the black anti-war movement. I uh, was uh, part of the second women's group in San Francisco, the Daughters of the Earth, I think that was we call ourselves.
0: And what was the mission?
1: It was raising the consciousness of oh. women and also self-esteem.
0: So it was the sort of the start of the women's movement. Yeah. It's about the time that NOW started or...?
1: Yeah, now uh, noun started a little later after that.
0: Okay. You were always sort of ahead of the curve.
1: Somewhat. <laughs> from there, I uh, separated from my husband. Well, first I became pregnant. I had a child, and I separated from my husband. I joined a commune, and I lived with about 11 people. <laughs> Around that time, also, people began to get more conscious of their food, the type of quality mm. of their food. Mm-hmm. The commune that I lived with was mainly, I guess you would call, it, activists. My house joined what they call, uh, we used to call it, the food conspiracy. But everybody else, other parts of the country, they call it food co-op. <laughs> I prefer the food conspiracy. <laughs> It was in our basement, so we had organic food. We bought food at the farmer's market in San Francisco. We used to pick it up and then you distribute it. Whatever was left, we had. <laughs> so that was good. We were associated with other groups of people. I also had friends that I knew from the movement. See, We call it the movement. In New York, a lot of them, Moved out to California, so we had this little tribe of people. This was also a part of the anti war movement. Some people may say that we were hippies, but if you don't define yourself as that, and others do, that's not who you are, right? right.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
1: The other thing I did, I did medical outreach mm. for an anti-poverty medical center in Chinatown. So I worked with the uh, Chinese populations.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Other groups I worked with was Third World Women Associates Coalition. And it was mainly women of color. And I mean Hispanics and Asians and blacks. Mm. We worked together. I also worked with, uh, I think they from a uh, Freedom House, a uh, Freedom Schools, where we went into the projects and after school, they didn't call it after school program, but that's what it, it was, and we would just work with the little kids and teach them how to read. One of my fondest memories was creating this little book for a little boy with him in it, and I got him to start reading, and I was, I, that was great. That's cool. But I was pregnant at the time, so gave birth, and I just couldn't continue it. Mm-hmm. I did some research with a group that was looking into the alternative lifestyle, and that's the term they were using instead of saying looking at hippies' lifestyle. <laughs> so I participated in that, collecting data, interviewing people, and seeing what their needs were. And in the process of doing that, I interviewed this person, this man, and he said, so why don't you just give me this money, and I can put it to better use. See, he had an underground newspaper where people, I think it was called Cauliflower, where people from commune to commune, they were able to. Connect with each other and uh, see what was going on. So his whole thing was give me give give the money to him, and I said no, it, it just can't do that. That's not how how it works. But he said, well, you guys are just using the money for yourselves, and and I said, well, we just had a nice little conversation. I thought that was that was it. The next newsletter came out. Described this short black woman social worker <laughs> going around ripping off the community. And I'm saying, What? <laughs> That's not me. Well, so I got ostracized oh by some of my friends that they believed him. <laughs> oh my God. So I just, and people were coming up to Gene, you did? This? I said, No. Anyway, I'm not a social worker. I don't even have a degree. (laughs) So my uh, former husband came to my aid, and he wrote them a nice, very long letter, clarifying everything. Meanwhile, I think it was about four or five of us who were during the uh, the research. We went back to the woman who was the head of the program and told her that there was some ten thousand dollars left over from that the research project. So we're saying that from the information that we have gotten, these are the things that the community needs. So why don't you use that money to create some of these things? She said, no, 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 we can't do that. Said, oh, we said, yes, 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 we can do that. All we had to do is just meet with, yeah, I think it was the San Francisco Foundation. All we had to do is just meet with them. <laughs> and we met with them, and it was heavy-duty for about two or three months, two or three hours, going around and around and around. We finally convinced them to use that money to create something for the community. And some of the things that we found out was that they needed child care, women were feeling isolated, and we uh, wanted to create play groups so single women can get together, uh, have some free time, and also for their kids to be able to uh, play. Mm-hmm. We created a Linden library, and we had a, a child care switchboard where people could uh, call in and talk about what was going on with them. And then we had, back in the day, used to call it rap sessions, That came out of the women's movement so women could get together and talk about what was going on with them. So we had set up rap groups for single women. And we funded various playgroups. And the playgroup that I belonged to, we hired a teacher. We found a teacher that needed to do an internship through Antioch. She came in three days. Since the majority of us were single, and then we had friends, we contacted the males who were part of our collection of people. And we got them to do weekends so the mothers can have free time. We rented a large space that had two or three rooms, and we built these bunk beds so we can sleep about six kids. So we had these males to come in, our friends, who felt that they were alienated. They didn't know how to relate to children, so they need to learn how to relate to children, how to nurture children. Mm-hmm. So they did that on the weekends, and so the parents had some free time. And then we also just did babysitting for each other. Mm-hmm. And then we, the child care switchboard, at first we thought it was just going to be mainly for single women, and what we found out was that it was mainly... Most of the people were calling us with complaint. Complaints were married women, mothers who were at home. They were feeling isolated. Mm. So we started setting up meetings where they could meet with each other, and that went on for. Uh, I think the city took over that after I left. So that time was very very exciting.
0: What did you do after that?
1: I went back to school and became an OVN, and California is a licensed vocational nurse. That program was nine months, and it was very, very intense. It was about six of us. I forgot how many people in the class. It was about six, six of us just felt that there was too much work. And if you want to have a very good nurse, you shouldn't pile that much in and for such a short period of time. So we started meeting with the uh, administrators, telling them, you need to change this, and this is the reason why. And if we don't, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. They finally came to their senses and realized that it should be an 18-month course, and you should get an associate's degree. But since we were so active, they decided that they were going to punish us mm. and tell us, well, you're not going to get it. And we told them that you missed the point. The point is, the program is too short, and if you want extremely good nurses, you need to extend it. For the amount of work that people are doing, they should have an associate's degree, and that's the reason why we are doing what we are doing. So, And that's the way it was. We didn't get ours, but mm-hmm. the people after us did. So yeah. after that, I started working as uh, LVN, joined the union, and then we started doing – Anti-union work.
0: <laughs> Anti-union work or union <laughs> work? Union work. Yeah. Try to get
1: the union to be much better at the hospital. I was there for about a year and a half, and then I came out to uh, Massachusetts.
0: What did you do when you got to Massachusetts?
1: Start looking for work, but then I look around. I didn't see any people who like me. So mm. I think that's what's the main reason. And uh, uh, Until today, you still don't see too many people of color working in the medical field, unless they were AIDS. I mm. think it's beginning to change now, but back then, 30 years ago, it wasn't. Right. So I found a job as an LPN mm-hmm. at Belchertown State Schools. I think about 18 months later, I still working as a programmer. That's what they call it. I worked for 25 years, departmental Retardation, and I retired from that six years ago.
0: Okay. <laughs> now, at what point did you run into the Baha'i Faith?
1: I think in 89, I needed child care, and I finally found child care. I think I got a list of people. I interviewed a couple of places, and everybody turned me down. They said, no, 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 no. She was the last person on the list, and she said, yes, but I'm going out of the country for a while, so give me a call when I get back. Called, I think about two days before I had to start at its new job, and <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do. Well, anyway, she said yes. I think about a week later, she said she had an assistant, and the name was Martha. I met her, and I think about a year later, Fanny left the country, and she went. She to- was
0: the woman that yeah. uh, ran the daycare.
1: Yeah, so she sold it to Martha. And then start going by Martha's house, going to both of them, Fanny and Martha. You would sit around and talk when you pick up your child. It was like every Monday I will uh, be talking with her, and her children, she had two daughters. And they would come in, Mommy, look what I did. And I was looking at these things, and I said, these kids are like four and two, and they're doing stuff like this. Where did they do these things? She said, oh, at Sunday school. And I said to myself, I don't remember doing anything like that in Sunday school. Well,
0: what was it that you saw that got your attention?
1: Well, they were doing all of these creative things, arts and crafts for, I see. for little kids.
0: What was Sunday school like for you?
1: Sunday school was going to, and you sit down and you recite things, and, and that was it, and then At the end of the day, you took your little collection at the uh, Italian bakery and you spent your collection money. (laughs) That was Sunday school. (laughs) Well, anyway, I started asking her about Sunday school. I said, well, can I go? Can anyone go? She said, sure, come on. And that's how I got introduced formally, but... In 1961 or two, I was on this picket line. Someone had mentioned the Baha'i faith to me. That was my first introduction. Mm.
0: What was your reaction?
1: Oh, I never heard of that before. But what she had said was that this faith is inclusive. And then I didn't hear about it again in details until uh, I met Fanny and Martha. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, all before that, I was, I guess, investigating, seeking, and reading about other faiths. And I came to the conclusion, I guess, in my late 30s, someplace around that, that there was only, all the religions were talking about the same thing. And how come they just can't get together on this one issue? And then everybody equal and created the same. So I came to that conclusion. I was too happy with some of the various faiths of Christianity, mainly because people were saying, I'm better than you and stuff like that, because I grew up in a predominantly Catholic town where if you were Catholic back then, it's changed now, but back when I was coming up, if you are Catholic, sometimes you couldn't bring your, Protestant friends, home and stuff like that, and I just didn't think that was that good. And then on Sunday morning, you see everybody going to different churches. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: the old adage: that Sunday yeah. morning is the most segregated yes. time of the United States.
1: Yeah. When I went to Sunday school, I just saw how warm and loving people were, mainly with the children, because I, you can test people by how they relate to children. <laughs> Sure. And people just went over to Daniel and picked him up and hugged him. And I thought, well, you know, he's a little active, you know. I think he should stay with me. A woman named Lynn, she just said, oh, no, just picked him up, brought him upstairs to the classes, and that was it. And mm-hmm. I said, wow, this is nice. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading some of the uh, the writings, and I said, oh, wow, this is what I've been thinking about all of these years. <laughs> And the idea of evolution of, of religion, that was it, that really got to me. And seeing that Baha'u'llah is the next manifestation, I say, wow, this sounds good. And just reading the writings.
0: Once you recognized Baha'u'llah, did you see that somehow changing your outlook on life?
1: Not really, because mm-hmm. I had gotten there. I was led up to it. Someone, maybe he was leading me to it. (laughs) I just thought about that because otherwise I wouldn't have found Fanny and Martha.
0: Mm. So you're retired now. Yes. What's keeping you busy these days?
1: I am into family research, genealogy. This is the third year I've been doing it with a cousin. I am her assistant. (laughs) When she first started, I think we had another cousin who had... Done some work about 30 years ago, so she picked it up about 25 years later. At that time, he only had 400 names, and now we are surpassed 2,100 names.
0: Wow! Now, how far back do you go?
1: The census has not been too helpful to us. Slavery has done us in. Sure. <laughs> Somewhere between 1780 and 1810, we know the slave owner's name. We think our ancestor picked the name because the uh, last name, surname, is Atlas. And we haven't found any slave owner's name with, with that name, Atlas. We went to, I think, five cities, two states, Louisiana, Mississippi. The slave owner, his name was Balfour. He owned about eight plantations, and one in Louisiana, and the rest were in Mississippi. We have gone to uh, courthouses looking up the records, archives in uh, Louisiana and Mississippi looking at microfilm. We have taken pictures of tombstones, interviewed a lot of people. We met one branch of the family that we thought we were related to. Now we think we have proof that they are part of our family because our last name is Atlas. So we also have a website.
0: What's the website?
1: AtlasFamilyReunion.org. There's a woman, she was getting some information because she decided that she was going to do genealogy research. So she Googled Atlas and the website came up. So she wrote <laughs> to Nika, my cousin, and said, How come you have the same last name? And so she explained to her about the family and what we've been doing. And Uh, email her back that they were doing the same thing, but they are incorporated. We are not. And then Nika told her that we were coming to Louisiana, Mississippi in April, and then we were going to look up the people in Port Gibson because we found some atlas in Port Gibson, so she arranged for us to meet her mother and Mm -hmm. aunts, and we talked with them, the thing that we that we think that is clinches that we are related is that they had a relative that their family used to talk about, this person, a relative who used to walk from Lake Providence to Port Gibson. My grandfather's grandfather had a brother named Andrew, and Andrew was the walking uncle. He used to walk down to... Port Gibson, so he has to be the same person.
0: Now, grandfather's grandfather. You're going back, what, 100 years?
1: More than 100 years. Yeah. King Atlas Sr., well, we know he was born in 1810, and he was a slave.
0: Yeah. Very interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Jean, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's so interesting.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I had fun.
0: (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jean Thompson a Baha'i living in Western Massachusetts who shared her experiences as a civil rights, anti-war, and anti-poverty activist. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number one 800 two two unite I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.